Let's say China. China. I love them. China. 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 I have to have my China. China. China because China. 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 China now. China. China. You know, China. I know China very well. Okay, now that is just mean. I'm sorry to have that thought now rolling through your head, and you will be saying China the rest of the day, but I had to do it because after this interview that I just completed with Jason Scheftel, I felt myself like Donald Trump, China, 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 China. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to introduce you to Jason Scheftel. We are going to label him on the show our millennial China guy. He is a political and economic writer. He's currently writing a book on China, and he hosts a podcast called China Unraveled, which is how I originally came in contact with him. Listened to a few episodes on his show and was really, really impressed because, like we always talk about on this show, he went into history of... China to help understand where we are now. Uh, I think this is a topic that is overly simplified, and it's also something that becomes very easy to pick sides on. And what's interesting about this, I think more than anything else, is the narrative about China in our country right now is really pretty agreed upon by both the left and the right. And that in and of itself makes for a unique topic. But the question is, how does the United States respond to things that China is doing? How do we look to the future? And I think in this interview, you'll see me ask some questions to Jason that maybe you've had on your mind. And hopefully this helps you kind of get a little bit more context to these conversations. Uh, The thing that I'll point out right now, he has an episode called Weighing the Dragon that basically asked the question, is China the threat to the United States, you know, world dominance and power that we have been told it is? I wanted to know his response to that question, so I asked him. I hope you enjoy this. Jason Scheftel. All right, Jason, we are calling you our millennial China guy. We're both 29 years old, and you've made it an emphasis for the last several years now to focus on China. And man, there's just so much to, as your podcast says, unravel. And I'm really excited to have a conversation with you with our listeners today to kind of dive into this topic. So my friend, thank you for joining the show. Welcome to Millennial in the Middle. Thanks, Connor. Glad to be here. So let's start with this question. I I think a lot of people, like it is easier to simplify the world around us. We talk a lot on this show that one of the ways we do that is by labeling people as either Democrat or Republican or good or bad. And it's really easy to create teams. And I think in today's world, it would be easy to say that like, okay, America are the good guys. China is today's bad guys and they're the enemy. Is that totally off base? Is it true? Let's start there. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what we're being told. And there's some truth to it for sure. China is not a nice place. The government is not filled with good people, but this is also being used in a lot of ways. For example, the U S government wants, I mean, the NASA, whether it's the NASA or the military or the energy department, they all know that China is a great foil for them. So they can say, hey, we need more money for everything to compete with China. And there's a bit of truth that we just passed a huge bill to move stuff forward like that. But 
is, you know, is China really this massive threat to the United States? That's like a that's a question people have been asking for a long time. And there's a lot of ways to cut it, but this isn't the Soviet Union again, right? There's it's a very different world. And I mean, that's some, some stuff we could talk about, but people need to know that China is not a good place, but the the narrative we get with China about China is just it's being used like everything else to split sure. us into camps, to get certain political ends, to get certain industrial uh, subsidies, whatever it happens to be. And there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I think we find that as we dive into most issues, right? They're more complicated than they are simple. And especially in a country like China to look at its history, where it's come from and how we've gotten to the world today as that plays on the global you know, environment. I'm excited to jump into this. So before we do it, let me first ask you, Jason, like what sparked your interest in China in the first place? Yeah, I've been I've been in the just pure interest. I've been into China since I can remember. Uh, but I think a lot of it really started around 9-11, around the early sort of wars in the Middle East. I remember thinking, wow, here, here, you know, here's our country and we're going to war in Afghanistan. We're going to war in Iraq. And it's clear that the people at the top have very little idea about these places or their histories or even kind of what's really going on. Yeah. And we saw that we saw that play out. Iraq turned into a disaster. Afghanistan, nothing ever changed. It was just the same thing. And now we're pulling out and the recent CIA report just said, hey, you know, the, the government might collapse in six months, which is like, wow, that's exactly what happened in what, 1999, 2000? Like the game, <laughs> nothing's changed. And there's no sort of sense of history, sense of what might have happened or how to change it. So that pushed me. I remember thinking at that time, like, wow, there's this enormous country over in East Asia, growing, developing, changing, evolving, transforming, really. It's an amazing, it's the greatest industrial transformation and the quickest one we've ever seen. And it was just happening in the background. I remember thinking like, our country is going to start freaking out soon about China. And I really wanted to know what was going on, what made that country tick and how it worked. And yeah, I spent a lot of time. I was first in China in 2010. I spent, I was in and out of there for five years. I learned the language. I basically had, there was a whole summer where I spent five hours a day getting the sounds of Chinese like drilled into my head. Because the way the Chinese language works is it has a it has an easy structure, but basically, if you can just learn all the sounds, they have these tones that kind of make it hard for people from other countries mm-hmm. to kind of understand it. You just learn words. You like get all the sounds right, and you could just learn learn like two hundred, five hundred, a thousand, two thousand words. You could start really kind of playing with the language. So I had, I did that, and I really dived into it way way deeper than I ever thought I would, and well, it brought me here, so it's been good. Yeah. So tell me for maybe listeners, uh, I've told you and my listeners know that I've spent about 40 hours in Beijing. That is my experience of being boots on the ground there. For someone that hasn't been to China, how would you just describe it quickly? Like, what is it like living in China? Yeah, well, China's China's changed so much. So we go back to the 90s. This was a third world country in almost a lot of respects. It was just yeah. almost every way. This and is in our really, lifetimes, not long ago. In our lifetimes. In our lifetimes, like if you're a millennial, right? You grew up, grew up in the 90s, late 80s, you know, were born then. China quite literally transformed, modernized into a whole new country. Like Shanghai was like a dirt, you know, the Pudong, the famous financial district in Shanghai. If you go look online, you could see a GIF of how it transformed from the 90s. It was literally like a dirty, muddy puddle. <laughs> and now it's a massive... Um, in, you know, commercial financial area. Yeah. And that happened all across the country. And in, and it's meant a lot of changes for the, like a really kind of hectic, hard to manage changes in China. So that that's what's going on. And it's a very different place in a lot of ways. Like in a lot of ways, you have a lot of freedom because it's just so hard to manage everybody. 
And Chinese history, it's always like a weird combination of a super authoritarian totalitarian state, but that just doesn't have enough people and enough time to manage every single little thing. Because there's 1.4 billion people there. And it's just that number is always crazy. Like it's just always, it's hard to fathom. So no government. I mean, the the Communist Party is about 90 million members. It's like, good luck with all of that. You're trying to manage, like you don't have, you don't have the numbers for this game. Yeah. So they do crazy stuff. And one of the things that hap- that's happened the last 10, 11 years is the new te- like AI and digital technologies and information technologies have really upped the sense of th- the way that the Chinese government can play that game, the sort of authoritarian, repressive game, surveillance game. And that's changed China a lot. It, when I was in China a lot in Beijing, you can just, I mean, there'd be people there. They're just around the streets. You can kind of do whatever you want on the local, on the sort of most basic level, you can sort of pee in the streets. You can, you know, during, before the Beijing Olympics, they did all of these things to prepare like sanitary measures to try and make the country look, feel modern to people from other countries. We don't even remember that, but it was a huge thing. There's just, it just, it went so quickly from being agrarian, rural, poor place to the coastal areas in particular being wealthy, that it's been a shock and everything's still kind of jarring in a lot of ways there. Yeah, man, it's interesting because you just said China, you just compared China to a place of freedom. And then in the next sentence said, you know, authoritarian, totalitarian, that is not a word that I think most people would equate to China. But you think about it, I think one of the reasons China is so hard to digest is because of its sheer size, just like you said, right? Um, The Beijing Olympics were in 08, correct? Right. So in 08, I remember when the world watched the opening ceremonies coming from yeah. Beijing. And there was that one time that all those drummers with the glow in the dark yeah. red drums, and it was futuristic. It was scary. It was almost like China was making this, you know, message to the world of here's who we are. And by the way, the Olympics have been a chance for countries to do that for as long as we can remember. Go back to when Hitler used the Olympics to show off what Nazi Germany was had done. And I think for a lot of the, you know, the globalized world, specifically America, it was scary. So my question to you is, should we be as Americans afraid of China? There's a lot of things to be, it's just the way the country's going, there's a lot of things to be scared of, but should our country be afraid that China is going to take over the world or defeat us in a giant military conflict or something like that? I think if this country plays its cards right, kind of gets its house in order, focuses, prioritizes, kind of does its own thing, lives its own life, there's nothing, there's not nothing, but there's a lot less to fear than people make it out to be. But you're right. The Beijing Olympics was deliberately crafted to be a, hey guys, China's here. We're back on the world stage. We're going to, again, it's always, it's always a volume problem. China's answer historically to problems has been throw bodies at the problem, throw (laughs) millions and millions and millions of bodies at the problem. And they did that even for the giant Beijing spectacle. And it it was, it was really cool. What's really interesting when I was at the Olympic park in Beijing, Uh it's totally, it's uh, basically like a tourist attraction. It does absolutely nothing these days. It's one of those things where it was a massive, yeah, you went. Yeah, it's empty. Like it's just—I mean, there's tourists milling about, but it's not used for anything. It was never sort of—it was purely for that spectacle, right? Yeah. And it—it really—that was—that was what it's for, and it kind of worked on people. 
global PR, and we're still yeah. talking about it. You know, thirteen years later, it. those so drums were crazy. Those drums were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so let's give a little context to this discussion. Uh, you talk about China kind of changing overnight, and you also tell me, uh, you know, you you've got in your podcast that I talk about at the very beginning. Uh, for those of you interested in listening, it's China Unraveled. You do an episode where you call it "Weighing the Dragon," and I like it because you kind of size up the competition. You size up what China is really all about. And talk to me a little bit through your process of what China might look like on a world scale, specifically through history. Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things is we don't have our our media and journalist and sort of politician class doesn't give us a proper read on the world and how to evaluate different countries and how to look at our own strengths, our own weaknesses, and those of different countries. And so what I try to do in that episode is give a brief sort of beginning way to sort of look at what the way to do this really is. And so, yeah, so to start, one one thing is, like you said, with the population thing in China, which is this, the population yeah. scale issue, there's also a land scale issue. So there are six continental scale countries on earth. There's the United States, there's Russia, there's China, there's Canada, there's Brazil, and there's Australia. These are like the six countries that are basically continental in scope, and they have potentially the sort of resource base, whether natural, you know, capital and labor in labor terms that lets them do possibly great things. But the way it works is you have to actually look at the actual geography and the territory to see the sort of nation that emerges. And this that's, gets, gets a little wordy and interesting, but basically a place like it's Australia, it's massive, but it's basically a giant inhospitable desert and a little, a bunch of people like clinging to the coast and the, everyone the, the, living around yeah, the coast on yeah. the very edge and it's empty. And you see the same thing with Russia. Like Russia is a massive d- disaster. I mean, there's, it's like, it's like all the worst land put together. It just, it just has innumerable problems and it has no military security. It has no defensible geography. It has very weak capital generation capacity. And it's just, hence it's histories of like a quick, you get, you get, you know, generalissimos and czars and dictators, and they try and preserve their country, and they are always paranoid and freaking out and trying to, uh, you know, not get invaded. They got invaded like massively for the every every century for the last four centuries or something. Yeah, like that. even by the Swedes. That's how it goes in in Russia <laughs> and China. That's really the way to look at China too, is to really understand its long history from the geography from the ground up. It lets you see the cultural groups that formed, the economic systems, the political systems, and just how they've merged and evolved and sort of integrated over time. So the United States is one of those continental countries that is just actually integrated quickly and effectively into one nation. So one of the things I like, I think is that on the left and right in our in our sort of world, you know, in our politics today, there's sort of two problems. Like on the left, you have a lot of identity politics issues. It's sort of like, what are the groups that compose this country? How should we rank them or order them or relate them to each other? Can there be a hierarchy? Is that immoral? Is that evil? And then on the right, you have this sense that yes, America is great. And there's a sense of like this, there's a certain exceptionalism, sort of American exceptionalism. We're special, we're a special nation. And I think part of what we need to do is get a perspective that helps us better understand both of these. So why why did America have the, economic system it had? Why did it have the social conflagrations and problems that it had that you know led to our identity politics? And what actually made America powerful, right? If we didn't have a Protestant work ethic and we didn't have a, you know, history, enlightenment sort of reason constitution and all of this, we didn't have a, you know, a religious moral core, like would America still be the same? If we had, if Spain had conquered 
North America and this had been a Spanish speaking country, what would, you know, that's the real question. And I think that looking from the ground up, we can discover a lot of what happened because what we see in the United States is a singular event in world history, man. It really is. The development of the United States, the fact how quickly it became a modern nation. So basically by the 1880s, the United States was the largest, I mean, it was the, the largest industrial power in the world. It was the largest food producer in the world. It was the largest energy producer in the world. It was the largest consumer market in the world. It was the largest everything. This is in the 1880s. This is before it ever invaded any other foreign countries for imperialist reasons, briefly like Cuba or whatever. This was also after slavery. This was not on the back of a sort of slave economy. This was, this was afterwards. So this was, but before that, it was sort of already by that time. You're looking at just a hundred, a little over a hundred years after the United States formed, it was already all of this. Meanwhile, a place like China has been around for 3000 years, like probably accurately around 3,500 years. And it never saw anything like that. It never saw anything like that. It wasn't even a possibility. So we have to be able to answer that kind of question. And so what I try to do in that way in the dragon episode, what I try and do when I talk about this is say, hey guys, if we want to understand what happens if China, if China is the best version of itself that it can ever be, right? What does that actually look like? And what does it look like if China fails? Because that's the thing people don't want to talk about. Well, let's say China China just collapses or something. That's a bad situation. That, that's the sort of thing with like, we went into Iraq and we knocked out Saddam Hussein and it's like, all right, we're gonna have liberal democracy. It's gonna be a beautiful thing. You're gonna have, you know, George Washington statues and right next to whoever the new president is. It's like, no, you had massive endless chaos and violence. And what we would see in China, if the Communist Party, as, as, as much as I strongly, 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 strongly dislike the Communist Party, if that disappeared, if that somehow collapsed, you would see massive chaos in China, like you really haven't seen probably ever, because just the scale of the population has gone so crazy now. So that's something we got to, that's one of these, like the complexity, right? You make it simple. If they're just an evil empire, we just take them out. Yeah. Simple, easy, easy, easy peasy, man. Take them out. We're America. It's what we do. That's right. It, it's going to be a disaster. You know, so that's that complexity. We have to look, we have to understand. So, and if China broke up, let's say the, the, the state collapsed somehow, how would the pieces, what would happen to all of the different regions? All Because that's what you have to know it on the ground. You have to know, like in China, it's a big continental scale country, over 2 million square miles. It's about the size of the United States. What's its version of Appalachia? What's its version of California? Like, what are the different regions that compose it? They have their own identities. In China, they have their own histories. They have their own languages. They have their own cultures. They have their own political systems for a while. That's what we got to know. And so that's kind of the way I, I go about it. But as you can yeah. see, like, I just don't like, I think that the way we're taught to look at foreign affairs, politics, global politics, I mean, these are often the guys in these think tanks are just people who like really like playing real estate, real like real-time strategy games and they're trying to like maneuver around on the world stage, but we live in a different world and it's, it's just, it's like childish at that point, at this point. So. Yeah. I think that that context of just literally talking about the land that China's on and comparing that to the United States. And frankly, the United States just had the perfect scenario and the perfect yeah. things that came together of borders of huge oceans on both sides, all sorts of land. And you're right. Like the beauty of the United States is that the Midwest, the Mountain West, where I live, like yeah. the Southwest is all just as inhabitable you know, compared to Australia, you drive 20 minutes inland and you're hanging out with the Aborigines. Yeah. And, and so if we look through that, I, I think your idea is very, is very smart in the way of, you know, 
our goal is not to take down China, right? And taking down China brings on all sorts of different issues, especially if we create this us them mentality. But what would you say, however, to the people that look at moves China is making right now, specifically the you know the Chinese Communist Party, and saying, well, they're trying to take down the United States? Oh yeah, I mean, I think they do. China does want to be the you know grand poobah of the world, right? I mean, that's that's in the yeah. plans. But I think every country has grand geopolitical schemes to be number one. I mean, the same way any person, anyone who moves to LA wants to be like number one producer, number one DJ, but yeah. most people just don't, don't ever get there. But you're right. I think what we're going to see over the next decade is really just massive, massive tightening of tensions, increase of hostilities. Like this is just baked in at this point. I think everyone across the US political spectrum and the US population is just totally fed up with China. Uh, no one likes it. They're hostile to it. And again, a lot of this is justified. It's a terrible state. I mean, it's oppressing Hong Kong. It has Uyghurs in concentration camps. It, it just, it has, it has terrible, terrible, terrible things going on. So that's, that's what's going to happen. I just think that the real problem is we weren't told we're not giving, we're given a very weak context for what's going on. So it leads us to make all sorts of bad decisions. Right. And I, I think yeah, we just got to be prepared. We got to know, hey, China is going to be, we're going to be in an increasingly bad conflict with China. And you just want to know kind of what the end game might look like, right? What are the real scenarios? And that's, that's kind of where it starts. Yeah. So help me and my listeners understand this. I, I try to avoid labels as much as possible, especially, you know, a liberal conservative and stay away from that. But I think it's hard to know, you know, we go through a presidential election, for example, and if the topic China comes up in a debate, I think it's hard to know, like, what side you even stand on that. And is that something that is a partisan matter? So if you were to describe simply for me, like, what would you say, generally speaking, the conservative party's view on China is compared to, you know, liberal, the liberal side of America, what their view on America? on China is? I think it's actually kind of becoming bipartisan at this point. I think people are really, there's a bipartisan animus against China. I think originally the, there's kind of different, the, every, both the right and the left are different, or they're part of shifting coalitions, right? Sure. And so they're changing. And so on the right, there was multiple perspectives. I think the national security group of conservatives, they were like, hey, China's scary. China's building up a massive Navy, massive military. That's that's a real concern. I think a lot more business conservatives were thinking, hey, that's a great place to produce all sorts of things. That made us a lot of money. We don't want to mess this up. I think on the left, there's a similar thing where a lot of people who are maybe more human rights oriented are justifiably horrified about everything China's doing. And then other people are thinking, hey, but they brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Again, this is one of those things where it's it's so it's very complicated. And even within the left and the right, there's there's it's not fully coherent. But yeah. I do think at this point, it's gotten bad. I think that people are just thinking, hey, enough. Enough is enough. On both sides, people are like, enough is enough. So we're seeing industrial policy and economic nationalism from like th started with Trump and it went through and expanded under Biden. So that's yeah. what's really going on. They could talk and chatter about, hey, we're so different from each other, this, this, that, and the other. And then you look at their policies, it's the exact same thing. So these politicians are just responding to the, the, feel, the mood of the public and to broader economic forces. 
they don't so, have their own thoughts. Come on. <laughs> so maybe the reason we could say why China can be so confusing to people is because we actually agree on it. And that's not the norm, yeah. right? So it, yeah. and it's interesting because how often do we have actual debate where we agree on what the problem is, but oh, yeah. where the debate should be is, well, what do we do about it? How do we respond? And I think as Americans, especially the less informed we are, that's when our brains shut off because we don't understand the nuances. We don't understand the context that would lead to that policy. And we want to simplify things. Donald Trump yep. was the best at it. Mexico, what are we going to do? We're going to build a wall and make them pay for it. Like, There's nothing about China that we can chant and yeah. simplify, which makes it tough to understand. Yeah, Trump, I mean, not Trump, uh, China is just, you can't do sound bites really easily. It's too big, it's too complex, except the, like you said earlier, that bad, evil, evil empire, take mm -hmm. it down. That's that's the basic uh, basics of it. But you're right. I mean, this is becoming bipartisan. And I think honestly, we're seeing movement just almost behind the scenes. We're seeing more action against China in the last two, three years than we've seen in decades. So it's probably yeah. going to be bad. It's basically being punished. Like there was new sanctions that came out yesterday. There's new, there's a, a bill passed to put tens of billions of dollars into industrial policy to boost semiconductor manufacturing and all sorts of stuff. And just, we haven't seen that in, I mean, since maybe the seventies or like early late eighties against Japan. And yeah, China has huge problems. So it, the, if the U S both parties are aligned and they're thinking, we don't like China, we don't like China. That's bad news for China in general. It really is because yeah. when it comes to currency and all, again, sort of complex economic stuff, there's a lot of leverage the U.S. has. And again, it's China's ringed on all sides by U.S. allies and U.S. naval ships. And it has weak, it has rough supply chains. It has huge imports it needs. It's, uh, it's dicey over there. Nothing unites people like a common enemy, right? I 100% yeah. agree. If my goal of this podcast is to bring people together, maybe it comes from just pointing out who the enemy is, but obviously it's more complex than that. I want to ask you two questions. Uh, first off, do you feel through your research and what you know about China that China is on the rise or the decline? I, I think China peaked. I think so. I think 2015 is a great year people can keep in, in mind. Uh, 20, in July 2015, the Chinese stock market, a bubble popped. That was a huge disaster. Then the next month, there was a, a currency attack, basically, and the Chinese yen fell 4% in two days. And the Chinese Communist Party had to spend a trillion dollars of reserves to protect the currency, stabilize the markets, reduce, restore confidence. And what we've seen since then is massive, massive capital flight out of China like the world has never seen. So $750 billion a year and it's over a trillion dollars a year at this point. Money does not, you, we've only ever seen that kind of capital flight in countries that are basically decline, like collapsing. So end of the Soviet Union, like when literally people were fleeing at all in the, in the rubble, uh, you, don't, you just don't see anything like that. So what that says is the smart money in China, the people with money who made it, they're trying to get all of it out that they can. And it's because the government is reinstating capital controls and not even just capital controls, the government is, I mean, preparing to expropriate money. So even just yesterday or today, they lower the deposit rate that basically the money you get when you keep money in a Chinese bank. And so the way the Chinese financial system works, there's four banks, historically, there's a bit of change now with sort of tech companies and sort of some of these digitally enabled finance mechanisms, but basically there was four state banks. You put all, you, the only invested option you had was to put your money in the four state banks. Four state banks took your money, 
repackaged it, moved it around, built loans, blah, blah, blah. And they developed all this infrastructure. That's the, the very small of how it happened. And then the only other options are real estate and the crazy casino Shanghai stock, stock exchange. So you didn't have these investment options that you have in the United States. You can't invest in crypto and all this stuff. You had nothing. You just had these state banks. And so the state gathered up all this money, used it to build all this stuff. And it's trying, it's now desperate to keep as much money in the country as possible. And so there's a, there's a couple you know, key points to note. So you have this financial problem. You have a consumer market problem. China needs to develop a, a consumer economy. It creates 30% of the world's manufactured goods, but it only consumes like 10 or 11%. It has to export the rest. If it doesn't have export markets, it, it'll have to massively downsize all of its production, which means hun- probably tens or hundreds of millions of layoffs. And this is kind of what the US struggled with in the 60s and 70s. It's very hard to reduce demand. So you build a massive industrial base that's primed for 30% of the world's production and he wants to go even higher, right? What happens if you don't have those markets? What happens if you don't build that economy, that consumption economy within your own borders? Well, that's what's happening now. And China's demography is so bad. It's like the fastest aging country on earth. It's it's never going to have a consumer economy. It's just, it's not going to happen. And you have so many hundreds of millions of people that aren't going to be participating that you're going to have to find out how to serve them. I mean, China was benefiting so much from having a young, basically young, healthy, cheap workforce. Didn't have to pay healthcare. Didn't have to pay social security. Didn't have to pay anything. Didn't have to pay disability. Didn't have to do anything. Just have low labor regulations, super cheap slave labor prices. It was, it was great. I mean, that's that's how it built up. You had cheap energy. Now everything is getting more expensive. Labor is more expensive. Social so, social costs, social um, spending costs are way higher. Energy costs are way higher. It's it's all these inputs are coming in. And it's, it's, dis- it's I mean, it's totally disrupting the Chinese economic model. And they need a new one. And the answer is supposed to be consumption. That's really the only model we have. There's something in Japan, you can have this sort of post-growth, <laughs> post-growth sort of model. But the only country that's done that is Japan. And good luck doing that with over 10 times the population that has much lower, much lower GDP per capita. It's a, it's a major thing. And I just think a lot of people have kind of known this for a while. And what the Chinese government has been doing is massively kicking up its debt to, like it needs to hit a certain growth rate. And if you can't get that growth rate naturally based on what your economy is producing, you up the amount of debt that you're producing. So basically- you add more debt to it, you can get a little bit more growth. And so that's what it's been doing. It's been sort of injecting debt into the system, to more capital, more loans to get more stuff built, more, more you know, output on the line, more energy you know, come pumping out of factories. That's been the thing, more, more, more. But the debt levels are getting so bad that it's actually made this, for each like dollar of, you end up, let's use dollar of debt, dollar of debt you put in, they're getting less and less growth. So they need more and more debt to do it. So it's, it's scaling up like crazy. And there's just, there's debt levels that we kind of haven't seen before in this country. It's in UN, so it's kind of usable, but that's what's been going on. Okay, so China on the decline after a peak is the answer. Question two, <laughs> is America on the decline or the rise? That's Have a really we good question. That is a very, very good question. <sighs> on, this, on this front, I'm definitely an optimist. I think there's a lot of strength in this country. I think it has a great, it has the ability to pull labor from around the world, capital from around the world, and it has a lot of great strengths. I think we talked about the base, the the natural resource base it has is great. The labor force, the skilled labor force it has is great, but it has a lot of challenges. 
And I think that we need to actually solve some of them. I think unlike China, these are solvable problems in the United States. That's the difference. You have a consumer economy, you can boost the production, you can reshore a lot of industrial activity, but there's serious challenges. I mean, I don't think this is gonna be the easiest five years, even 10 years in this country. There's a lot of changes going on in the world, but it's gonna be tough. I think the US can do it. I mean, I I don't say that about a lot of other countries. Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, my listeners know I'm on the optimistic side of that question. And I, I break it down often to, I think the strength of America doesn't come from graphs or charts or GDP or, you know, the things that we might look at as an economist. I think it comes from the people. And, you know, so I'd be curious to hear your perspective of one of the strengths of the United States, I feel, is the fact that people, Uh, The United States attracts the world's best. They want to build their businesses here. They want to be there. You go throughout the world and you hear American music and watch American movies. And there's so much that looks to the U.S. that way. But uh, you don't see people trying to go assimilate into the Chinese culture. You don't see Chinese (laughs) culture as an export, right? And is that true or is it different when your boots on the ground? No, totally true. I, I, China does not have the culture industry. It does not have the the sort of economic pull for for skilled labor around the world. It just doesn't. It has a tiny number of visas every year. It has. It's like they're I not recruiting. 10, yeah, they're not recruiting from a global pool, right? And so, I mean, America can do that. And here's an interesting thing. I mean, people like there's a sense when there's like a lot of people, particularly on the left, like to imagine a world where there's no exploitative relationships anywhere in any society in between any society. And I just, I always think about immigration in particular, where it's like, what you're actually doing in the United States is taking all of the smart people that could go fix the countries they're from and say, no, 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 no. You could have a much better life here and we'll have more money. And it's a win-win except for Slovakia, which is left as Slovakia. Um, So I think that's one thing I like to bring up. I mean, even though it's like, not like, oh, you know, we're so great sort of thing, but it is, we have the power to, this country has the pull to pull in people from all over the world. And we are in a sense, we're using a lot of the globe's resources. So we really have a bit of an, I don't want to say obligation or responsibility or potential to, to really use that well. So- yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's what gives us lasting power uh, compared to China that might peak or these other nations that come in and out of power. Um, in wrapping up here, I want to ask more of a philosophical question. And uh, this kind of goes against my nature. So this is really playing devil's advocate. I want you to tell me the pros of communism. <laughs> well, okay. So, so I, first of all, I don't think here's a little bit of a contrarian little point here. I think that the big I, big capital letter ideas and political systems, social economic systems we have from the 20th century, they're not going to totally apply in the future. So I think that capitalism, as we think about it, socialism, as we think about it, fascism, as we think about it, communism, as we think about it, they're, they're hate. I think capitalism is a little different. It has a more of an evolutionary character. But the, the great thinkers and the great systems of these, these are old. I don't think they're going to apply in the same way. So that's kind of a quick tidbit. But okay. What we see in China isn't quite, it's basically a state capitalism with an authoritarian, it's like a cl- classic sort of imperial state clothed in communist garb. China, communism appeared in China basically as a nationalist movement. Basically it was just a, another thing to like rebuild the Chinese greatness sort of thing. Yeah. And that's kind of what it is. But communism by itself it has really no likely 
useful future in, in the 21st century. There's no actually, like if China was actually trying to become its grand ideals, be like, by 2050, we'll be like a purely, you know, post-socialist communist utopia. It's like, yeah, no, you're not. You're going to just keep pushing that back all the time because it doesn't work. Uh, but the thing about China is it's like you said, it's not Venezuela. It's not Cuba. It's, you know, it's not like a small little island. You kind of just oppress everybody and, and happen. It had to evolve. So it's a... It's a varnish, really, when you see, when you hear communism in China. There's a sort of authoritarian character to it, but the actual thing is something pretty bizarre and, and statist and Baroque. But to, I think a broader, I'll kind of end on a little philosophical thing. You know, in the 1990s, there's this guy, Francis Fukuyama, who said, hey, it's the end of history, right? We beat the Soviet Union, massive evil empire, legitimately evil empire in a sort of way, and the liberal democracy has won. And one cut I like to take on that is that it wasn't really the ideological battle. It wasn't like liberalism versus or capital, liberal capitalism versus communist authoritarianism, whatever. It was really getting back to what we talked about before. This was really North America versus the world. Basically, what we learned is that North America, the, the United States, basically has, has won the, the geopolitical game this specific country, this nation, and no combination of a massive Eurasian power like the Soviet Union was enough to, to defeat it, it collapsed. And the only one remaining really was China. That's another reason I was so interested in it. Well, maybe China, once it kind of gets its act together, can compete with the United States. You know, I, I go into many reasons why I think that that didn't work out. And what it really shows is that this, this geopolitical game, this game of like, who's gonna be top dog in the world, that's over. I mean, it really is over. I mean, people could say, oh, India is going to take over the world or it's Brazil next. But this is people who are divorced from reality, from really the way things work. And it's not their fault. It's not anyone's fault. It's just we don't give context. We don't get context for this anymore. And I think that that's really what we need. We need to think about like if the U.S. has really won this game, what do we do now? I think I mean, we have to move forward. We have to try and move technology forward. We have to try and move our system forward. We have to you know, be inspiring to other countries. But we also have to have our own vision of things and. That's where I think I think things are so messed up here. It's like we're still playing like, and that's the thing I don't like about China. It's like, okay, good, we'll play a better game if China is you know our our boogeyman and we can sort of orient ourselves toward a, towards a nemesis. Like we're gonna we're gonna sort of be you know we're gonna perform better in a lot of ways. But when the boogeyman's gone, we're just left with ourselves again, and that's what's gonna happen. It's gonna be just like after the end of the the Cold War, we're gonna be like. We're top dogs. Like, all right, same question. What are we? What are we doing? <laughs> and so that's what people, your listeners, the audience, like, that's what you guys should be talking about. Talk to your friends about, try and figure that out. You don't even need to think about politics. Like the politics that we're talking about, they don't know how to address the big issues. They don't know how to address the looming demographic changes in the United States. They don't know how to even talk about the, the major things that are structuring where we're going. So forget that nonsense. That's what I say. So you're telling me we're justified in chanting we're number one. <laughs> yeah, you just gotta know why. It's just better if, if no, we are number one. Let's let's figure out why. And let's figure out like what to do. I mean, it's like it's kind of like if you're the you know the best basketball basketball player on a team. Do you just sit there like a like on your throne and like get drunk and just start getting messed up and say I am I am clearly top dog god here. Like <laughs> we don't win anymore because I don't get on the court, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, well, I know you're from LA, so I know that's how your uh, your stars act over there. Uh, just teasing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's interesting. To me, it's 
it's so much of it is about branding. And I feel like China has, you know, you talk about, we think of them as a communist country, but then just say in reality, like we think of communist communism and capitalism to be opposed, but they do practice capitalism. And, and then you said that phrase of, you know, America or China took part in a nationalistic movement to restore yeah. China's greatness that sounds a little familiar. What were we? What were we just caught up in in the United States? This nationalist further to make America great again. It's all branding. Yeah, there's something to it. I mean, I think a lot of countries, this internationalist globalist era is is really ending ending in a lot of ways. Just structurally, it can no longer sustain itself. And all these countries with national histories, with pride, they're all wondering what comes next. How do we navigate through it? How do we figure it out? And so it makes sense. There's some parallels, but at times you're just thinking like, hey, if if, if it's so similar, why are we told it's so different? Um, yeah. And there, there are big differences, but it's like, there's something weird with that, right? For sure. Definitely something to think about. And uh, I think it definitely opens up for to for some continued conversations on this. We might have you be our resident China guy on the show like we <laughs> talked about. And uh, tell my listeners, uh, I've really enjoyed listening to you, like I said in the intro to the episode. Where can they find you? What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, best way, you can find me on Twitter. So it's at Jason Scheftel. You can just find me there. That's the best way to kind of find me. I have a website where I have some articles, some things I've published. I've Articles coming out in different different uh, publications too. You could again check it out on either the website or Twitter. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where I've been doing some live streams. People have been asking me questions, so I might start doing some Q and A kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, we need to kind of know what to do and where to go. Like, just stop thinking about the old problems. So I'm trying to help move that. And I got the podcast, which is always good. Check out China Unravel podcast. It'll be something fun coming out for the Communist Party's hundredth birthday, uh, <laughs> the birthday bash. And yeah, I think that's a uh, good places to find me. Awesome. Well, I'll uh, make sure all those links are in the episode notes. And uh, I actually think maybe it would be cool to do some collaboration on that YouTube channel of, you know, asking. I actually have a voicemail hotline from the show here that mm. people can call in and ask questions. So if you have a question for Jason, I haven't talked about this, but I'm sure he'll be cool with this. Feel free to call into the hotline and I can pass that along. And uh, maybe it'll be some content for, uh, con for stuff that you're putting together as well as a good place to kickstart that. So thank you so much for your time. Best of luck in all that you're doing next. And uh, until next time, clowns to left me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Thanks everybody. And thanks, Jason. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in